It is five o'clock on the Costa del Salford. Welcome to Thursday's Richie Allen Show. I hope your day has blessed you thus far. You've had a good day. Thanks for joining me again once more into the breach. It's um, going to be a good programme. John Waters, the brilliant Irish author and journalist, is my guest today. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, John's my guest. I'm sure you'll have something to say to John. Do let me know via the website richieallen.co.uk. It is a brisk, it is a cold, it is a chilly Thursday here in the northwest of the UK, but it has been dry It has been dry. And doggy lovers and doggy walkers. That's good news, isn't it? It's always good. Yeah, John's on. We're going to talk about quite a few things over the course of the hour or so that John is with me, including the fact that yesterday yesterday afternoon he was in court charged with violating COVID restrictions and moving outside a two-kilometre radius from his home back in the lockdown period. Yes, yes, I know. So, uh, yeah, I've never asked this, by the way. Have have you been fined? Not that I'd expect you to pay the fine, but have you or anyone you know been fined for disobeying the COVID rules? Uh, well, I don't know why I've not asked that before, but I'm asking it today, and I'm asking it in, 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 in the proper spirit. Have you? Nobody ever came up to me. During the lockdown periods, the better half of mine, myself and our dogs, we did whatever we wanted and went to the places we ordinarily went to. Parks, and I mean parks you drive to, you know, and nobody came to us and said, um, what are you doing here and where do you live? Well, oh, that's about nine kilometres from here. We better fine you. We never saw anybody. So I don't know. Let me know. Did somebody attempt to fine you? It is uh, an interesting afternoon because the Church of England has backed proposals to allow prayers of blessing for same-sex couples. We've talked a bit about this recently. The Reverend Dr. Jamie Franklin was a great guy, was on the programme uh, 10 days or less ago to talk about this great division in the church. The Church of England has not decided that gay men and women can be married inside the church. They didn't go as far as that. It was discussed whether or not in in some sort of compromise whether churches and bishops could bless gay couples who got married somewhere else. And they've decided to do that. They're not they are not compelling it doesn't appear anyway, compelling priests and vicars to bless gay couples if the gay couples come to the vicar and say, listen, we got married in the town hall. Would you please bless our union? The vicars and priests will not be compelled to do that. They can choose not to. The motion was passed in all three of the Synod houses, or Synod, Biscuit Bar. How do you pronounce it? Synod, Synod. I've heard it said both ways many times. So these plans were set out by bishops last month, were criticised today by by those who think they go too far, but those who think they don't go far enough are not happy either. Do you have an opinion on that? The Archbishop of York, the most reverend Stephen Cottrell, well, he's happy because he'll be doing it, but uh, the Archbishop of of Canterbury will not be blessing same-sex couple unions. He said there was a painful disagreement within the church, but he supported the proposals broadly. 
Yes, this one is, I think, to use a cliche, is going to run and run. He said, I am supporting these resources, not, I think, because I'm controlled by culture, but because of scripture, tradition and reason evidenced in the vast work done over the last six years so ably by so many. I may be wrong. Of course, I may, he concluded saying, but I cannot duck the issue any more than anyone else here. I would have thought it was simple, and I'm not a Christian, I do not attend church, and I do not agree with the... I have to keep saying this because you never know when you are speaking to a listener for the first time. I do not agree with the Christian decree on same-sex unions and same-sex marriages. I don't believe that homosexuality is a thing, you see. I have no problem with gay people getting married, but I do have a problem with it being forced on Christians, Muslims, Jews, Sikhs, whoever, because they believe their faith is that the scriptures are the word of God and that God says it's wrong, therefore they say people shouldn't get, same-sex couples should not get married in church. That's where I have a problem with it. We'll leave it there. I'm guessing John Waters might give us a quick comment on that. It isn't a problem in Ireland, at least in the Republic of Ireland. Of course, there are Church of Ireland churches. The Church of Ireland, of course, Protestant Church of Ireland is, well, it's it's there and it's a big thing, but I'm not sure this is so much of a problem in Ireland. Again, I stand to be corrected. Interesting development on the story of the missing young mother, Nicola Bully. You might remember she went missing on the 27th of January near St. Michael's on Wire, Lancashire. Very strange case. The When it was discovered she was missing, her dog was discovered alive and well, but, but out of harness, and her phone was discovered still connected to a group, a work telephone call or a Teams call. And this has been... Um, well, it's got a lot of coverage, this. The family have not been too happy with the police. The police initially thought she might have fallen into the river. And until today, that's how they were proceeding on the basis that she might have fallen into the river. But late this afternoon, they said that they are now moving to the coastline and that she may have ended up in the sea at Morecambe Bay. But a lot of social media people and armchair detectives have been turning up to the scene where she went missing. And this has really peeved off the police, so they've put a ban on this happening. They've said it's grossly offensive for people to be doing that, filming on social media outside houses in the area and at the scene where the lady disappeared. So this is interesting, this story. Yeah, I see, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to anybody who might be involved, but you see a Netflix documentary, don't you, at some stage in the near future. Let's hope against hope, even though I don't know the lady, of course, and I have no... Skin in the game, to use that terrible cliche. Let's hope that the miracle occurs and she turns up. Now, the there will be no immediate transfer of fighter jets from the UK to the Ukraine, according to Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary here. You will know that the President of the Ukraine, sorry, I should say President of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, yesterday was uh, at uh, Parliament. He addressed MPs in Westminster yesterday and he called for fighter jets. He wants more uh, assistance from the UK and he wants it in the form of fighter jets, right? But Ben Wallace has told the BBC 
that supplying aircraft to use in the conflict would potentially take months and said the UK would focus on using alternative provision of air cover to Ukraine. He didn't rule it out, did Wallace, but said air support and supporting moving troops could be achieved using long-range missiles and drones. He was speaking in Rome at a conference and said it's more productive to think about the UK providing Ukraine with aircraft in the long term. Okay, Rishi Sunak, the UK Prime Minister, was uh, speaking about this today to GB News. Here he is on planes for Ukraine. Well, one thing I'm really proud of, and everyone should be really proud of, of the leading role that the United Kingdom has played in providing military and other assistance to Ukraine. And as Prime Minister, I announced first amongst G7 countries that we would provide main battle tanks to Ukraine. That catalyzed other countries doing the same. That's going to make a major difference in the coming months in the conflict. I also had very good conversations with President Zelensky yesterday about our ability to provide long-range missiles that they don't currently have, which again are going to make a big difference in the struggle against Russian aggression. And of course we're talking about further support, potentially with aircraft as well. The important first step uh, of that journey is to make sure that we provide the training for Ukrainian pilots to be able to use that very sophisticated equipment. And we announced yesterday that again we'll be the first nation to start training Ukrainian pilots on NATO standard aircraft. That's a really positive forward step and we will continue to stand by Ukraine because we want to see them victorious. Yes, and the relatively new news channels like GB News and Talk TV, you know the ones who claim to be the alternative media even though they are the furthest thing from alternative media. Both those channels pushing hard for the UK to send planes to the region. Not a single journalist in UK legacy media asking the, the, the $64 million question, why are our leaders, they're not our leaders, you know this, I know this, they're not in charge, but let's pretend they are. Why are they not calling for an end? to this situation. Why is nobody saying, well, I'm prepared to go to Moscow to sit, sit, to sit down with Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, to try and thrash out how this could end. And then I'll take it back to Zelensky and we'll get this situation sorted and put to bed once and for all. Nobody. And again, the relatively new news channels, which claim to be the alternative to the mainstream, are not. They're pushing it, pushing war, pushing tanks and planes and for this thing to be prolonged and for more people to be killed and for the spin-offs then, you know, the pebble in the pond, you know, the circles ever expanding out, all the other problems that follow on from prolonging this conflict. Speaking of the clown, and he is a clown, Vladimir Zelensky, he's no statesman, who did address MPs yesterday. I did belly laugh this morning David Lammy, just looking at a photograph of David Lammy is enough to make you erupt into peals of laughter. He's a ridiculous human being. These days the guy serves as Labour's shadow foreign secretary. Ridiculous. He was on LBC with Nick Ferrari this morning to tell Nick about the thrill of being present for the 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 the, the Lensky address yesterday. <laughs> I think I'll need to have implants. My teeth are falling out. Yes, he came on. That was poorly, poorly, poorly written, that. He came on LBC Radio to tell Ferrari how thrilled he was at being president for Zelensky's address yesterday. Madness. What was it like being in the hall? I envy you that. Morning. What? What did Ferrari say? 
What was it like being in the hall? I envy you that. He, he envies. What was it like being in the hall? I envy you that, says Nick Ferrari. What was it like being in the hall? I envy you that. Morning. This is piss, isn't it? I mean, this is piss, masked, masked as journalism. I mean, I've got to say, it was actually incredibly moving. Incredibly moving to see this little man in his green jumper and his green pants talking to us and asking us for, for, for fighter jets. It was really moving. Um, it brought back... What did it bring back? The fact of war, the seriousness of war, the death, the carnage, the pain, the... The pain. Hell. The hell. If you like. If you like. Uh, and that he was amongst us almost a year later was sort of quite staggering. I think all of us were thinking, you must have post traumatic stress disorder. We know that you're barely seeing your own children as weeks and months pass. The pressure must be enormous. And all of us sitting there as politicians ourselves, obviously tremendous, tremendous respect for him. He, he had many colleagues with him that you probably couldn't see on the screens. No, we didn't. No. Uh, it was one of those historic moments. It was historic. What was it like being there? I envy you. What was it like being in the hall? I envy you that. Morning. I envy you that. What a fat sack of lard, tub of lard Nick Ferrari is. Garbage. Not a question about, hey David, seeing as you're the opposition, uh, do you have any opposition at all to the UK government, your opponents across the House of Commons, planning to send planes and tanks and training pilots? You're supposed to be the party of peace. You were the party that opposed the... Well, no, you weren't. You were the party that sent... The country to war. What's wrong with me today? In 2003. Yeah, forget that. Scrap that. No, nothing. Why don't you oppose the Tories? Why are you not trying to do something to bring about an end to the conflict? Yeah, that'd be a question, but no. No chance. Spoke earlier in the week about central bank digital currencies. Digital ID. Digital pound. It's going to be launched this decade, according to the Treasury and the Bank of England, whether you like it or not. The BBC reported this week that it's not going to happen until 2025. It will happen. And a woman called Susie Violet Ward, I thought, very eloquently put the problem with central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. She's a fintech, a financial tech analyst. Here's Susie Violet Ward speaking on GB News this morning. Every person that I come in contact with in the public, I ask them, do you know what a CBDC is or a central bank digital currency? And nobody knows. But the Bank of England have been researching this for years. It's been on the card for years. But unfortunately, the government like to manage perception. Yeah. Why would they be worried about us understanding this in more detail? Because it's money that can be programmed, which means that they can tell you when to spend it, what to spend it on and how to spend it. And they can also assign government agendas to the spending. So, for example, if they think that a certain area of the economy needs more stimulus, they'll push you towards that. If they think that we shouldn't eat as much meat, they'll stop you from buying meat. If they think that you've flown too many to, on too many holidays, they will stop you from going on holiday. Now... That sounds like the stuff of a dystopian nightmare and a fantasy. Well, it isn't a fantasy. They lay it out. It's in their own documentation. It's a rules-based currency, love. Your guest is bang on the money. They don't want you eating meat. You will not be able to buy meat with a CBDC when cash is gone. Go to the butchers. Sorry, you're over your limit this month. Go and try and book a plane ticket. 
I'm very sorry. You have a air mile allowance and you have exceeded it for the year. You ain't going anywhere, love. So how does it work? T- tell me what, th- what this would work. Because um, some people say, well, it's just the same as Bitcoin. No. No. How, how is it different? Bitcoin is a decentralised protocol that is a peer-to-peer cash that cannot be interfered by bad monetary policy, by governments, and you can send a digital cash to anybody on the planet with a mobile phone for pennies in seconds. What we're talking about is a highly centralised banking system. In fact, it will probably get rid of our commercial banks. And what we know how the government actually deal with our data, I don't really want them holding it on a central database where they have all the powers that be over it. At least at the moment, it's scattered around and we have different institutions looking after different areas. There's almost a segregation of duties of sorts. But this will be a very highly centralised protocol. Yeah. The thing is, as it stands in the UK... You can take £3,000, up to £3,000 a year as a gift from friends or family. Mostly family, I think. So family can give you, you know, up to three grand. You might be really down on your luck. You might have had a lot of... You might have had a difficult year. You might have had a difficult five years. Your family can weigh in up to three grand. Now, we've gotten around that for years, haven't we? Because when family and friends are in need, we take a few quid out of the cash machine and we go to friends or we go to the family and say, there's a couple of hundred quid, don't worry about it, never want to see it again, I love you, look after yourself, and if you need any more, if I can do anything, come back to me. Now, I've not always been in a position to do to do that. I've been on the other end of that, to be honest, right? But um, with the CB, CBDC thing, with the digital pound, well, you won't be able to do that because, because it'll be, it won't be traceable. It won't be traceable. Traceable implies that they might have to go looking for it. They will know it instantly. Oh, look what he's done there. He's given his sister or his brother or she's given her mother 500 quid. Right, well, we'll tax that. You owe us now, I don't know, whatever it is, 50 quid you owe us. We know that you've received money from your daughter. That's just a basic thing. That's just one tiny aspect or element of this. I don't mean to be pessimistic, and I'm not. I'm in very good form today. But once cash goes completely and you are into CBDC, I reckon it's game over. It's game over. 20, 19 minutes even past the hour this Thursday, the, the 9th of February. Yes! We're nearly 10 days into Feb. How cool is that? Drop me a line, richieallen.co.uk. Comment live. And I will read your comments out as we go along. John Waters will be with us momentarily live. Can't wait to speak to John. It's been a long time, actually, because I was due to speak to John, I think, in August. But then I blew up my previous studio, didn't I? Absolutely blew it up. And uh, we, we haven't spoken to John since then. And I really love listening to him. Paul says, Lammy. He says, Zelensky barely has enough time to see his kids. The scrounging little mug has oodles of time to waste meeting useful idiots like Ben Stiller and Sean Penn, though, doesn't he? Says Paul. Yes, he has met quite a few celebrities. Uh, Jenny says the murdering thug Zelensky is being fated, whereas a truth teller like Julian Assange is being left to rot in a high security prison. It makes me absolutely livid, says Jenny. And herself says, who is that twit talking about Russian aggression? 
and how proud the UK should be to send tanks to slaughter more people in the Ukraine. That'll be Rishi Sunak. Uh, the tweet. Hi to Faisal who says, Evening, people is uh, is turning up, people are turning up to investigate Nicola Bully's disappearance is offensive to who exactly? The police maybe, asks Faisal. That's a good question, Faisal, and it's a fair question. But social media is a bit of a cesspit. And not everybody is as thick-skinned as you. I don't mean Faisal, I mean you, I mean everybody. Or me, I don't care what people say about me. But for some of the family members, I believe some of the posts have been, well, pretty raw. Every one of them has been accused of murdering this this, uh, woman, as far as I can tell. On social media. But again, I would say to people, if you find yourselves getting upset with people on social media because they say things you don't like, even if they are pretty awful, mute them or just don't use Twitter. It's as simple as that. Okie doke. Hi to Vicky. Hi to Kelly. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing? Hi to Gaz. It is uh, 21 minutes past the hour. What else did I want to talk about before we move on. Well, the death penalty. This is much of nothing, really, but it's worth mentioning. We often talked, you and me, we've been chinwagging now for many moons, about how what was over there is over here. That wonderful line in Praying for Time by George Michael, how the we have seen the Americanization of of British politics and political discourse and more importantly, the presentation of politics through news channels. It's all become Americanized, where it's polarised, where commentary has replaced journalism, and grifters are everywhere. And I was reminded of that today when Lee Anderson, who's a former Labour Party councillor and Labour Party member who defected to the Tories and is now a Tory party MP and was recently appointed as the Conservative Party deputy chairman. Lee Anderson, very much American in his approach. This is how politics is going in this country now, becoming more and more like the what you would have expected to see on Fox News 20, 25 years ago. Lee Anderson says he is in favour of the death penalty coming back here in the UK. I used to know this stuff off by heart. Ruth Ellis was the last woman hanged, was she? I couldn't tell you who the last man to be hanged in the country was. But anywho, Lee Anderson was on talk TV with Julia Hartley Brewer, the thinking man's crumpet. Well, let's be clear, Julia. This is not something new that I've said. I've said it in the past. I've said it before going to Parliament. I've said it while I've been an MP. Obviously, it's not uh, It's not government policy. It never will be. I was asked a question uh, and I answered it. And, and I always think that in certain circumstances, it's difficult to argue against. And, and, and the case I always go back to is the, the murder of, of Lee Rigby. Um, several years ago, you know, murders like that, where it's, it's, it's the proof is there. There's hundreds of witnesses. I believe it was on film as well. I mean, it, it's, it's very, very difficult to, to argue against uh, the death penalty in cases like that. And, and, and I pretty much stick to that sort of view. 
Um, so, and, in, and in the yeah, wake of the, but, I mean, we've had the conviction, we've had the sentencing of David Carrick, the the, the police officer who's been convicted. I mean, numerous rapes, 24 rapes, 24 women who were evicted, used his status as a police officer. He's been sentenced to, after time on remand, 30 years behind bars, minimum life sentences. But yeah. at the age of 78, he could be out on our streets if he was uh, given parole then. Do you think that he's not killed anybody, but he has raped and, 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 and abused horribly uh, many women? And and, you, and abuse the position of trust as a police officer. Do you think he should get the death penalty? No, I don't. I think what we should do with, with creatures like that, they should be locked away forever uh, and never see the light of day again. And I think most people, most British people would think that. I mean, this is a horrible, horrible man and some despicable things. Uh, and, you know, our courts need to send a clear message out. I mean, I mean it's, it's been sentenced to 30 years, I think it is. I don't think he'll see the light of day again and, and good riddance to him. He won't see the light of day again. That's the police rapist who's going to go to jail till he's about 80. What does um, his boss, Rishi Sunak, think of the death penalty? Well, that's not my view. That's not the, the government's view. But we are united in the Conservative Party and wanting to be absolutely relentless in bearing down on crime and making sure people are safe and feel safe. That's why we recently tightened up sentencing laws for the most violent criminals so they spend longer in prison. It's why we're on our way to having 20,000 more police officers on our streets and we're giving those police officers more powers to tackle crime, whether it's stop and search or just this week in Parliament, we're giving police officers the power to tackle violent and extremism. Shut up, you Muppet. They have plenty of powers. Plenty of powers to tackle crime. But they choose not to. I know I said I wouldn't mention it again, but I was knocked down by, by two cars that fled the scene on Liverpool Street in Manchester. And they, they don't care. They've just decided not to investigate. So they don't need any powers. What they need is a kick in the arse. A kick in the hole, as we would say, in God's country. Jean-Anne went to the hairdressers this morning for a hair restore and permanent wave. That's Jean-Anne Crowley. And apparently she's absolutely gorgeous. Can't stop looking in the mirror. And said that on the cashless thing, she said she did uh, speak to a couple of ladies in the hairdressers. And she made the point of how essential cash is in these times, and they wholeheartedly agreed with her. Did the and I think folks of our age and older, they understand the value of cash. They understand the dangers of cash disappearing completely, and uh, and it is going to disappear completely. I think after we're gone, we might still use cash where we can. But I think once we're gone, you you see the same things I see, don't you? You see them paying with their watches now. You see them paying with cash apps, with Apple Pay, tapping their phones to the things, to the machines in the shops and stuff like that. I'll never do that. Yes, of course, I've I used a debit card like everybody else. And sometimes when you're in a pretty big queue, yeah, I've tapped it, the debit card, I've tapped it. Cashless, yeah. Uh, contactless, I've done that. Terrible. But um, once we're gone, it'll be cashless. Nelly says, if the death penalty returns, make sure the puppet masters of this world are first in the queue. That's a good point. Maybe Lee Anderson wouldn't be so keen to see the return of capital punishment if uh, the crimes of his government and the governments that came before his government were eventually brought to justice. Maybe he wouldn't be so keen on it. Listen, you know what I hate about uh, radio presenters more than anything? You know what I hate about people on Twitter more than anything? Is when they say RIP when celebrities die. And they really didn't give a shit about that celebrity. 
when they didn't give a damn. It's just a thing to do. Oh, R.I.P. So I never do that. You very rarely hear me say R.I.P. But I'm going to do it today. Burt Bacharach is one of the greatest musicians, one of the greatest composers of the 20th century. My record collection is full of Burt Bacharach. I was introduced to the music of Burt Bacharach and, and Hal David by a man I've mentioned many times on this programme over the years, a man called Billy McCarthy, who was my mentor in radio. He uh, passed away a few years ago, Billy. But uh, I would have never heard of, well, I would have heard, but I would have never spent any time listening to Burt Bacharach. So here's a tune written by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. It's Jackie uh, DeShannon's What the World Needs Now Is Love. It's a beautiful song. When I come back from that, it'll be John Waters. What the Yeah, Jackie DeShannon and What the World Needs Now is Love, Burt Bacharach, Hal David, of course. Jean Ann Crowley has just uh, dropped in to say, loved uh, Burt Bacharach. He was 94 when he died. Uh, he was asked what his favourite of all time was. He picked Alfie because that was the one tune they were given a brief for. They were asked to write the theme song for the movie. What a sweet genius was the man. Great life, beautifully achieved. My guest today spent a quarter of a century writing for the Irish newspaper of record, the Irish Times. He's been a music journalist as well. He's written for The Spectator. He's been on Irish television and radio for many years, debating and arguing and uh, discussing the big issues of the day. We got to know him a couple of years ago on this programme. Uh, he needs very little introduction. Uh, you can read him, and please do read him, at johnwaters.substack.com. That is johnwaters.substack.com. It's a real pleasure to welcome back to the programme the one and only John Waters. John, welcome back. Lovely to have you back on. Hello, Richie. Thank you very much. It's great to have you back. Listen, let's get straight into it. I First thing I did this morning was I used the search engine, put John Waters' journalist in, clicked news to see if there was any news from yesterday. I've not been in touch. I wanted to save it for today. You were in court. Tell us, tell us all. Oh, man. Well, in a sense, there's nothing to tell. And in a sense, there's a hell of a lot to tell. I, I, I was in court all day yesterday in Dundalk wait on, uh, waiting for a charge to come up against me in respect of an incident that occurred allegedly in May of 2020 when I was, oh, my God, outside my 2K limit uh, and uh, was stopped up there. Now, uh, you know, I got a summons six months ago. The summons actually was issued within days of the completion of our Supreme Court hearings, uh, so of, the, of our constitutional challenge. So myself and Jim O'Doherty. So you can make your own mind up about what that was about. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, yesterday I spent from shortly after 10 o'clock until shortly after 4 o'clock in the courtroom and the case still had not to come up. There were 237 cases listed for yesterday. 237 cases. And uh, uh, when we left, more than 70 of them or 80 of them had still to be heard. Uh, and they were adjourned uh, into May and June in when, of course, inevitably the same thing will happen again. So that's Ireland, modern Ireland for you now, you know, uh, uh, that's what we've arrived at. Uh, there was no way of knowing, the, nowhere to go, no one to ask. Uh, 
uh, what time approximately would our case, would my case come up at? Uh, just You had to just wait there on the off chance. I mean, there was a sequence, but there was no way of predicting whether particular cases might take one minute, an hour or whatever. Uh, no, and nobody cared. Nobody. So everybody just standing there in a cold hall, uh, the doors wide open and, you know, into the cold uh, air outside. Uh, COVID notices, of course, all over the place to watch your health. But nevertheless, you know, <laughs> up to you to keep warm. You know, it's not our business that we're going to advise you and keep you locked up in your own house. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're not going to do anything to protect you in our public courtrooms and we're not going to do anything to facilitate you. In fact, I have a great idea, Richie, that actually rather than have prisons, we should just have courthouses, very cold courthouses, drafting, you know, <laughs> and sentence people to spend numbers of days in those courthouses, you know, waiting to be brought into courts yeah. which don't exist. Right. And that you could actually get away with the prisons or better still renovate them a little bit uh, to accommodate all the politicians, judges, uh, uh, journalists who will be in them very shortly with the help of God. Well, with the help of God. Yeah. John Waters is our guest. What an experience that is. Uh, must have been. And like you said, it could be the same again in four or five months time. You, you know what? You know, what's remarkable for me in the last couple of weeks. I come from I, I might as well say I'm from Waterford, but I come from Ballybeg in Waterford, which is a well-known a housing estate, local housing, local authority housing estate there. I'm very proud of it. C- growing up there, rough and ready, you know, everybody worked either at Waterford Crystal or in the industrial estate. And Ballybeg would, would always have had a, a, you know, a bit of a reputation around town because it was a, a council estate. And I used to f- be, be fiercely proud of it. And when I got into radio, I used to get really annoyed with people saying negative things about Ballybeg. And you know, these people are ignorant and sure they're all lunatics and places like that. And what what's amazed me in the last few weeks, is I've seen these videos uh, online where Irish people coming from, um, coming out in, in from parts of Dublin, inner city Dublin, where they're putting, uh, where they're housing migrants who have come into the country, often young men, and we'll talk about this in a minute, and this is problematic for many of these inner city residents, and out they come, and sometimes they have a bullhorn, or sometimes they don't, and what, what the thing that struck me most, and I'm so proud of it, is how articulate so many of these people are in expressing what's going on and why they're there and why they feel it's important to express mm. that they're concerned about the impact that unfettered migration, immigration is, is, is having on them and on their access to vital services. And yet the same story, it's like me and you, or like a broken record, me and you, the media paints them as all knuckle-dragging bigots. That's all yes. they are. yes. That's it. Uh, uh, like, you know, the, the way that the media talk about this, you would think it was an organic, naturalistic form of migration, but such as always existed, where people come to a country uh, in search of a job or if because they have particular qualifications or having landed a contract or wanting to study and so on, have got a visa and so on. Uh, they, you would think it was that people were objecting to those kinds of things instead of mass inward migration orchestrated by the government, canvassed in multiple countries for by the Irish government and advertising the fact that if you came to Ireland, you would have your own front door key within four months. This is not immigration. This is plantation. And there let me be no doubt about it. And they can say what they like about racist commentaries and blah, 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 blah. You know, the, the same old cliches come out time and time and time again. They refuse to argue For 20 years, they have refused to allow people to discuss this matter openly. They have refused to answer any questions about what they're doing, what their plans are, what their target is, what their end game is in terms of numbers. I've asked them. 20 years ago, I was asking them, Richie, 
Look, just tell us, you know, just tell us how many people do we have to take so that we can no longer be called racist for questioning it? In other words, you know, do you have an outward limit? So, and, then, and I just want to get a number, right? Are you, you know, I want to get, you know, so, you know, tell me, is it a million people? Oh, don't be ridiculous. Okay, okay. So it's not a million people. It's less than a million people? Okay. Now, okay, is it a dozen people? Well, that's totally ridiculous. Okay, so it's more than a dozen, but less than a million. Now, let's work on that and try to find the number. And let's say, Richie, that the number they finally agree on is, you know, uh, 457,226. Now, if the whole 457,427th uh, person, shall we say, uh, arrives the next morning, we've already met our quota. Is it okay if we say, I'm sorry, Ireland is now full. We're going to have to send you back home. Or is that still racist? Now, you know the answer to that, Richie. Yeah. It, it is still racist. These are simply bullying, blackmailing words dragged out of the histories of the United States, the South, the South of America, the South Africa, and imported into Ireland, a country with no history, which even remotely resembles the histories of those countries. A country that has no responsibility of any kind other than what it, out of the goodness of its own heart, decides. The heart of its own people, not the pockets of its ministers and government and politicians, etc., etc., six billion a year is being spent by our government on NGOs, which are basically unemployable uh, middle-class people uh, who uh, basically uh, uh, work assiduously from morning to night to destroy Ireland, the fabric of Ireland and its culture. And if the Irish people have opened their mouths about it, they're called these names. You know, it's it's quite hilarious. You know, I mean, I. At a certain level, you find I find it in a weird way funny. I was walking down the street there. You know the way these people think they're so clever and witty. And 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 I was walking down the street, and this guy shouts across at me. Oh, oh, he was laughing already. You know, he was laughing before he came, he opened his mouth. <laughs> I hear you're a fascist now, John. <laughs> you're kidding me. You know, I, yeah. like this is what you're up against. These morons who have no idea what's happening really and don't care. It's simply a kind of a recreational thing with a, when they're not making money out of it. It's purely recreational where that's their hobby. It's their T-shirt. You know, I'm not, I'm an anti-fascist. I'm not a racist, you know, uh, like they can't even make up an original slogan. Like, are you a fascist? I hear you're a fascist now. Father Ted, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Adapted for the situation. Like, and, and the Irish people have been bullied by this stuff now for 20 years. And it has worked far, far too well because we're so far down the road now to being obliterated as the population of our own nation, our own home, our own island, that it will take radical action by a government of integrity, which is almost impossible to imagine emerging from the political scene of Ireland at this moment. It will take that to set things half to rights and to find a plan, you know, to undo some of the damage that's been done and then to kind of find a way of how do we actually 
uh, address our new population, what's, what will remain, and try to integrate it in a, in a human and reasonable way so that we won't result in conflicts into the future, into the infinite future, which will make the struggles, the, the troubles of the, north, of the north of Ireland, the northern part of this country, from, from the uh, uh, late 60s to the late 90s, seem like simply a little skirmish in a bar. Let's stay with that. I was part of the problem back in the late 90s, early 2000s. This happened in Tremor. I think I mentioned this to you before on air, so I won't labour the point. I worked for WLR. I'm a trade unionist. My politics were always on the left, so I would have seen the people complaining about the influx of African refugees into Tremor. I would have called them racist. Um, I would have been wrong to do that, but that's where I was at the time. I was in my early to mid-twenties. I knew everything. I was smug and smarmy. Um, I'm not entirely... I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not that much less smug and smarmy maybe now, but I've learned a bit. That being said, right, um, I, I, I still... My heart still goes out, obviously, to the people of my country, but I have to acknowledge that the people who find themselves in these direct provision centres, it is not their fault. Now, before you jump yes. in, before you jump in, no. let, let me finish the, the part. I'm, very going, brief. I'm not going to jump in, Richie. And I know you're not sure. saying that. Because I have things to say that will surprise you. Yeah, I don't doubt. And I know, I, I, but, but, I'm, but, so listeners understand, John has not said that, that um, he's not laid any blame whatsoever at the feet of the migrants, but, but others do. And I get so frustrated because we're talking about God's people. We're talking about men. I know it's a lot of young men. I know that. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Women and children that have ended up there. It's not their fault they're there. And they're bound to be nervous when they see people gathering outside their hotels, you know, saying, get out and Ireland is full and all of that. And I just wish that the, the, the genuine, most of the protesters, of course, are genuine. They're not racist. Why do they not take the fight to the homes, and I'm going to get into trouble for saying this, and the residences of the bastards who make these policies and who call them racist? Why are they not outside their houses, John? Well, you see, this is the thing, Richie. I have said time and time and time again that we don't actually have a mass migration problem in Ireland. What we have is a treason problem. That the political, the people that we elected to be our quote-unquote representatives have turned rogue on their own peoples. And are for whatever reasons, which are somewhat, to some extent, opaque as to why any Irish person or any person claiming to be Irish would, would be, set their cap at doing what they're doing now. You know, that so I've always said, you know, that what's happening here is is not, you know, it's not naturalistic organic migration. And in, in a situation where people come to Ireland spontaneously, it is ipso facto, self-evidently appalling to actually, to, you know, be in any way unkind or unwelcoming to such people. And I never have been personally and would, never would be. And I don't I always separate the person from the phenomenon. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I, I talked, I, I know lots of people who've come here from different countries, you know, of all colours. And, and I always will wish them the time of day I might have a chat. If they're working in a cafe or a bar, I'll talk to them in the same as I would to an Irish person. The people that this struggle is with, as you have said, Richie, is, it is between the people and their leaders, so-called. And, and they need to remember that and not to actually to, to in any way you know, scapegoat these people. Now, I know there are complications to that because there have been, uh, there is evidence of criminality and other actions which uh, the government have been taught to cover up 
And that's a serious campaign which has been you know, pursued all the time where crimes happen and they're not dealt with as crimes and so on. But that's, a, um, I think, a relatively uh, marginal issue within the bigger picture. But nevertheless, what you're dealing with again is the duplicity of the government, the criminality of the government, the mendacity of the government uh, and, and the political classes. And, and people need to remember that, I think. But, you know, it's funny what you described there as your own responses like, you know, I mean, like uh, going back uh, to about about 20 years ago, there was a referendum in Ireland. You might remember it, which, which had to do with uh, closing a loophole, uh, which had appeared in the, in the Constitution, whereby people... Uh, were coming here from African countries. Women were coming here from Africa to have their children here because the, the Irish constitution permitted that uh, once you had a child here, that child was naturalised immediately and you, the, the, the parents and the families of those children then could claim citizenship of Ireland. And a person called Michael McDowell uh, was involved in pushing this referendum, um, who is now attacking the communities of of, of uh, uh, North Dublin and other places for protecting the communities that they have built with their own sweat and blood from influxes of ma vast numbers of people, not from single women with babies, but but like hundreds of, 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 of young men, mostly. And I, at that point, I, as a journalist in the Irish Times, I opposed that referendum. Uh, uh, on the basis that I believed it wrong, that, it, you know, that the issue, the way of dealing with that issue was to prevent people coming here and exploiting the, the, the loophole. It wasn't to actually prevent, to, to destroy the idea that if you were born in Ireland, you became Irish, because I think that remains true. It is metaphysically true that if you are born on the ground of Ireland, you are Irish. And, and I didn't want that idea to be di diluted or abolished. And so that surprises people. And it surprises people who are on the same side of the argument that I'm on now. If you ask me, would I do the same again now? I'm not sure that I would, because the situation has become so grave, whereby, as I've talked to you, I think, before about, the numbers just are appalling. I mean, in the 10 years up to uh, uh, 2019, and, and uh, I'll talk about the period after that. It's, it's more opaque. But the, the, the figures are, for that period are fairly clear. Approximately 120,000 people came in, immigrants into Ireland in that period per, per annum. 120,000. And in the same period, approximately 105,000 Irish people left Ireland. Yes, there's a net, yeah. Yeah. So, and then they say, well, if you if you use the term replacement, you're accused of being a racist. No, you're being a factualist, because that's actually what's happening. And that's before you get to the fertility rates of the respective uh, uh, elements of this equation, because many of the incoming uh, populations from places like in Africa, Somalia, etc., have fertility rates in the region of five per adult woman, which is, I mean, as people well know, it, the, the, the replacement rate, uh, if I can use that phrase, uh, is 2.1 per adult woman. And in other words, that a population can simply renew itself at the same level, uh, year on year, generation upon generation. Now, uh, the present uh, figure that is given for Ireland is 1.8, but this is misleading because that includes also the number, the people who have come in. It incorporates, it's an aggregate average, as it were. And 
the it is more most likely that the the fertility rate of the Irish indigenous population is now 1.3 or lower. So that is the 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 equation is a and there's complicated mathematics in this which I don't claim to 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 understand, but it has got to do with the way the. Uh, uh, populations renew themselves, that there's a figure of 1.6, which is regarded as almost like the cliff edge, that once you go below that, you, your population falls off a cliff over a generation. You basically lose your population entirely within a generation and a half or so. There's a there's a thing in Japan, the Japanese are very worried about this at the moment. I yeah. was reading in, in on, on the BBC website recently, not, not to throw you off your train of thought but but yeah it's it's pretty prescient it's not just in ireland it's elsewhere around the world as well so can i just ask you again i don't want to be throwing you off your your thought process where are the irish who are leaving going is it the usual places it's the usual places uh, a lot of them are going to to australia have been going to australia and canada um uh, America, of course, Britain, uh, as well scatterings throughout Europe, but not, not, you know, but you know, a lot of medical people, a lot of people, nurses and doctors have been going to Australia, for example, uh, you know, uh, and they want to come home, but they can't afford to because uh, you see, one of the effects of the immigration and the inward migration is to drive wages down. So if they were to come back now, they would have to get, take radical pay cuts in order to survive in their own country, in which now prices of, of houses, etc., are vastly gone through the roof. So this is a trap. This is, of course, one of the functions of the purpose, the purposes of all this. You know, this is nothing to do. But let's be clear about all this, Richie. It is not that, you know, that the government is full of bleeding hearts, you know, who are spending their whole time worrying about the coloured populations of the world and so on, you know, and fretting, you know, that these people might be cold or hungry or not have a roof over their heads. They couldn't care less. Agreed. Any more than they couldn't care less about the people who died in the April of 2020 due to the due to the, the basically call that occurred there or the vaccines that have been killing people for two years. They won't even talk about it. They deny it. They make up stories about it. They're now telling us just not to deviate, but they're now telling us as by way of explanation. Oh, that was because of the fact that people couldn't get treatment during the lockdown. And, and, and it was also the social distancing, which had an effect on immunity. The very reasons which we actually pointed, the things we pointed right. out in May are now being used by them as excuses. Yeah, gaslighting in the extreme, that. In yeah. the extreme, yes. Yeah. So so they don't care. This is not about, you know, their compassion for these people. It is part of a programme to drive down costs for multinational corporations all over the world so that they can exploit the work of peoples and, and come into nations which are well-developed and still be able to call in on, you know, labour at a much lower rate than they might otherwise have to pay. And and that's one of the functions. There's also really, it seems to me, really uh, some kind of ideological assault on the Caucasian populations of the world. There seems no doubt about it now that, you know, all over Europe, there's, this is being this is happening. Uh, uh, in America, it's happening. The border, the southern border of the United States is wide open. People are walking in. They're tearing up their passwords and ports and throwing them away as they, as they are as they come into Ireland, uh, throwing them into the into the uh, you know the the the, the sea uh, or or uh, into the bin as they leave the plane. But you at know, what rate? Right, hang on now, because this I've got to jump in there and be to be fair to these people. How I read this all the time that some migrants come in, some immigrants come in. And they immediately destroy 
their documents, but does anybody have any idea how often that occurs? Like, what percentage of people will do that? Oh, I don't know the exact percentage, yeah. but the government have conceded that it does happen. Yeah. And and it has been well known for many years, right across in, in these ways of migration that it happened in 2015, that people come into the European countries and indeed into America undocumented. Young men because, do it, don't they? Sorry, yes, John, young men yeah, do it. Yeah. Yes, because that's much, it, it, that means you don't, you're, you're not traceable and you can make whatever claims. And not alone that, but these people are being educated, they're being coached in doing this by the aforementioned NGOs. This is how, they, these people are working against their own people. Uh, they are seeking to use these newcomers in order to create. Another thing is, you know, the voting aspect. The political parties of the West know that they're being kind of, you know, they're, 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 the, the game is up for them in many respects. They want new, fresh blood that they, that's what they can do, uh, build up a, a level of credit with by doing them favours and then give them votes so that they will continue to remain in office, in power uh, into the future. And all of this is orchestrated by very insidious and sinister groups like the World Economic Forum, which is there in the shadows all the time, manipulating everything, threatening people with basically closing down their cultures, closing down their freedoms, closing, you know, bringing in 15-minute cities, yeah. uh, you know, all this stuff. You know that you know what what has happened to the to the populations of the West, the indigenous populations in the last three years is unprecedented in in recent memory. Certainly, I would say unprecedented in the history of Western civilization, uh, uh, in terms of the scale at least. Certainly, certain terrible things happened in certain areas and so on. But this is a whole widespread attack on the very peoples of the West, and this is another part of it. And what's happening here is like that they, they, they are using these people uh, as, as, as pawns, these in, in, incoming uh, migrants as pawns in order to, br to break down the societies. And essentially with the view to removing the attachment between the populations of these countries and their land, their place, their home. So that you will have a population which is mobile, which is, you know, a, 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 a not particularly attached to where it is, doesn't is indifferent to its location so long as it has all the necessary things, uh, you know, and that uh, uh, we, we in the who have lived in this these countries in Ireland all our lives, who regard it as our beloved home, are to be treated as aliens in our own lands into the, into the not too distant future. I would say that this is already beginning. You can see it in the sneers and the venom that is emitting from the mouths of, of, of politicians now, that they have a total contempt for their own peoples, the people who elected them into positions of power. God help us. John Waters is our guest. You can read John at johnwaters.substack.com. 25 years nearly at the Irish Times, the Irish newspaper of record. Brilliant journalist, brilliant writer and author. Uh, you will get links to his books on johnwaters.substack.com. Look, again, with me old lefty hat on me, you say that there's an attack on West, on the West and Western cultures and Western civilization. The fact is, the the regions that many of these people are coming from have been pounded into oblivion for decades by the imperialists in the West, the the neocons in America, um, the lunatics in this country. 
the military-industrial complex, the banks. We could be here all day long. Yes. Well, it's yes. Africa, it's Asia. These countries have been destroyed. Okay. And in many of these countries, there's nothing for these people. And look, I know this is silly. This is not intellectual, what I'm saying, because you know this. But I just want to reinforce, not for you, but for our listeners, okay, that the majority of these people are looking for a better right? life, can, right? Can I address this, Richie? You Do. know, I, I don't disagree with anything you've said there. But and, and, and of course, there's a big argument to be made about that in the West. And I, I don't necessarily end up on the same on the side that you might imagine on this, because I have arguments with people about the responsibility of the West in relation to its own history. But wait a minute. Ireland is not like that. No, Our, Ireland is not part of that West in this sense, because and I've written enormously over the years about this, the connections, precisely what you're saying, the connections, the, the profound, you know, historical, philosophical, metaphysical question, uh, similarities that exist, for example, between Ireland, the Irish people, and the experience of many African nations who were colonized and beaten down by different European countries, as we were. And I think, you know, if there's going to be an Olympics of beating down, we're going to be right up there on the podium. So, you know, I have written many, many times about a man called Franz Fanon, who was um, from Martinique in the Caribbean, uh, the island of Martinique, who wrote a number of amazing books out of his experience in Algeria during the civil war there at the end of the 1950s, early 60s. And he talked about the psychology of colonialism. And the effect, the psychic effect of these processes on the on the minds of the population. And when you read those books, Richie, when I started reading them, a book called The Wretched of the Earth, I immediately recognized my own people in it. So I have a huge affinity with these people in their own history, in their own cultures, in their own countries. And I, I have been to Africa many times. And to mean different countries in Zambia, Malawi and, and so on. And uh, uh, Uganda, and, uh, 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 you know, it's, I, you know, this is absolutely the case. But Richie, that the solution is not for them to move to Ireland. Yeah. How could it be? Any more than the solution for Ireland was to move to Zambia. You see, like, what? whose solution is that? That's the globalist solution for themselves. Of course it is, but you'd never turn it down, would you? If you're a young man in Somalia no. or East Africa and they say, look, We've no. got we've got a house over here for you. We'll get you some benefits. We'll get you looked after. You're going to snap the hand off them. I'm not making that point for your benefit. You're far too clever for that. But for some of our listeners who are calling me naive, I'm not naive. I know no. what John is saying is right. I know but what it's doing to Ireland and to yes, the UK. And, and there's a released argument there, Richie, yeah. which is always coming about. Oh, the Irish went all over the world, you know, and they should yeah, therefore, in yeah, other words, yeah. let the whole world back in now that they have a few bob. Well, the first question I'd say, have we really a few bob? We have a lot of paper money that was foisted on us by a f fake economics uh, pushed by globalists. And it's very dubious whether that money is going to survive the present calendar year, never mind into the future. But that's a, lot, a different story. Just look at the, the, the reality of what immigration does to a country. You know, the, the way it is put in this argument is that, you know, uh, being allowed to leave your country and go to America and buy, build railways and skyscrapers is some kind of privilege that you were allowed. These people fed famine and imposed famine, an extermination campaign. 
in order to to go to America and be able to send a few bob back to their own, a few dollars back to their own people to keep their own families alive. Now, you know, that did tremendous damage to our country. For no, for there's no question about it that all those years since the 1840s, right through the late 19th century, into the 20th century, into independence, right up to the 1960s, the 1950s. Mass, massive outward migration of Irish people, which sucked the life out of our people, out of the country. Now, so there's, there, there are two casualties as a consequence of, of, of every action of migration, not necessarily every individual, but every kind of wave. Once you suck people out of one country and put them into another country that isn't looking for them, that doesn't need them, and we don't need them. Frankly, we don't need, we, there isn't, it isn't as if Ireland is expanding in such a way. We don't have the facilities. You know, that episode I described in the courtroom in, in, in Dundalk is a classic example. You know, 237 cases in, 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 in uh, four and a half hours. You know, how, what kind of justice are you going to get in that? Banana you Republic, know, and, yeah. and the same is true of our hospital systems. The, tr- the same is true of all kinds of services. Uh, you know, that we don't have any. So it's not like we, we desperately need these people and are able to deal with them. But the, prob- the other side of that is that those people are being stripped from their own countries when, in fact, they should be helped, assisted. If the European peoples were truly compassionate, the governments of Europe were truly compassionate, they would be looking at ways that the European countries could help African people, for example, in their own countries. In order to allow them to live there and to develop their countries and to develop their civilization Uh, uh, in their own way. I don't mean to impose Western civilization again, as was happening in the waves of colonialism in the past. I mean, genuinely say to those people, what can we help you with? And I know people in from in fairness, I know people from Europe who were doing that of their own volition. Very good people who go out there and work with African peoples and help them with all kinds of, you know, educational projects and agricultural projects and so on and so on, food production and so on. And 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 but that needs to happen on a much larger scale. Scale if we're really to truly to be compassionate towards these people in need. Help, sucking them in here to stand at street corners, uh, you know, is not a solution to their problem. Fair enough. I want to read several comments and then I want to ask you about something else. It's four minutes or just about two uh, past six o'clock, I should say, this uh, Thursday, the 8th of February. Thanks very much to Vinny. Vinny has sent me a link to an Irish Times article from yesterday written by Cormac McQuinn. And this supports something you said a moment ago, uh, John Figures show that 40% or more than 5,000 people who applied for international protection in Ireland last year either lost or destroyed their travel documents before arriving at Irish immigration control. That's a big number. That's four four in ten, basically, didn't have their documents or destroyed them. And that's just last year. That supports something you said earlier. I'm going to read two or three more quickly. Craig says it could be argued that if World War Three were to start, our countries might need large numbers of conscripted young men, he says, and possibly women. Our own populations have become increasingly unhealthy, but the migrant populations are far healthier and could be used as the first wave of draftees. Just a thought. You might want to come back on that in a minute. 
but, but, but let me just read a couple more. And Claire says, Claire is an Irish woman who recently returned to Ireland from New Zealand. And this is an excellent comment. Richie, we keep hearing the term far right. When I hear far right, I think of swastikas, skinheads and the KKK. Ireland apparently is an outlier because all you need to be called far right is a pram and attend a protest. It's yeah. an excellent point there, yeah. Yes, very, very good point. You know, I, I'm called far right. There's a, there's a book that came out last year by some idiot woman uh, uh, where she she goes through the far right. And the reason, the evidence she, she uses for my being far right, Richie, wait to hear this. I have used the term cultural Marxism. Right. <laughs> That's, that qualifies me as being Hitler's younger brother. You That's know? it, yeah. Genghis Khan, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but can I talk about the point you made the, the earlier one about the World War Three? Okay, you see you see now you see we're into the real territory here now, Richie, and ask you that. Well, who would start World who War? Who would start III? it? Yeah, yeah. Well, we wouldn't. We know that NATO would start. The United States would start, and they're doing their damnedest for the last twelve months now to start it. So if we're going to be prisoners of the United States bellicose activity. And, 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 and we'll have to basically surrender our countries rather than calling them to order, rather than our government, you know, morally, ethically standing up to the Americans and saying, listen, you better cop on. You better cop on. Calling them out before the world, which in the past, I swear, I believe in the 50s and 60s, with the calibre of leader we had then would do so and was involved in all kinds of things like the non-proliferation theory, treaty and so on, of nuclear weapons then. Now we have these morons who are grotesquely irresponsible and are actually putting their peoples in harm's way. They're drawing targets on all of our backs by the, their, their bellicose activity, surrendering Irish neutrality, abandoning, trampling on Irish neutrality in order to appease their American masters and their British masters. The whole question of the Ukrainian war, you know, since the beginning, one of the most, I think, telling aspects of it was the way that the British government in particular, but working on behalf of, Amer of the American government, sought to disrupt any attempt to create a peace treaty between Russia and the Ukraine. Back as early as last March, uh, uh, when there were ongoing uh, uh, discussions, talks, reaching a conclusion in uh, Istanbul, Boris Johnson got on a plane and he went over and he got uh, 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 Zelensky by the collar and said no. No, no peace, no negotiations. Now, are we going to be, deliver ourselves into a World War Three started by these guys? And then to get, say, well, that, well, now we have a responsibility to, to basically allow our nation, our country, our, our existential metaphysical home to be swamped by outsiders who have no affinity for this country, with all due respect to them, any more than I would have if I went to live permanently in Zambia, or no affection for Ireland, no real desire to be Irish in any meaningful sense. Uh, I don't think that that's a way to run a, a nation. And I think that it, 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 it is a way of running a nation that is essentially totalitarian, which ignores the, the proprietorial interest of the Irish people in their own land, their own dear land. We have the right to say what happens to this country. There's all kinds of nonsense talked, I mean, by these politicians. Oh, well, you don't have a veto over who comes into your community. You don't have a veto over a person or two person or a family or whatever coming into your family. Of course, that would into your community. That would be invidious. That would be appalling. But you certainly do have a right to say 
when a, a, several busloads of foreigners arrive who outnumber the people living already in your village, you have a right to say, hang on a minute. What's happening? Yeah. And why? You're right. Yeah. You're 100% right. Something I couldn't grasp when I was a younger man. With the Tremor situation, which made national news headlines at the time in Ireland, John Waters is our guest. Are people worse? Now, I don't see you as a saviour. I, I think it's never been more important than now that we have good writers. And folks should go to johnwaters.substack.com. But are people worth it? I meet white indigenous British people over here in Salford. I meet Irish people over here. Once in a blue moon, they'll they'll recognise the voice and they'll say something about the show and we'll have a bit of a chat, and I'm very undogmatic if such a term exists in the lexicon. I'm very soft, and I don't get into it. I just say, well, you know, I've seen this or I've seen that. And you you get nothing from people. Like, critical thinking or reasoning seems to have disappeared. Nobody is asking, why are our politicians in an attempt to alleviate this cost of living crisis and alleviate our bills. John, my electricity and gas bill last month was £400. I nearly had a heart attack. It was 300, that, sorry, December. It was £340 for January. They're blaming this on this crisis. Nobody in my neighbourhood or in my community, and I'm talking about white, indigenous, educated, sometimes educated British people who work at Media City or who work at Salford Royal Hospital, are asking the question, why are they not trying to broker a peace deal? Don't people deserve what they're getting now you know because the majority of people are not like me and you yeah well that that this is you you're now touching on one of the great uh, irritants and mysteries of of uh, uh, where we are richie because certainly we have discovered in the covid period that there is a huge problem with people's minds and people's alertness uh, individually and collectively in the face of um, radical interference in their lives and, and you know, totally unwarranted uh, uh, overreach by governments. Um, and it's a great, it's a great puzzle. And, 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 you know, there's a lot of debate on about it now. You know, we, I've been involved in it myself. I've written an awful lot about these things, about the concepts like groupthink and, and mass formation and, and mass hypnosis and all that kind of thing. Because I do think that something like that is a fault. That you know, there's there's the use of, of very strong emotions uh, in in culture now in the mass media culture being pumped out all the time in the same newspapers like my own former newspaper, the Irish Times, where all this hate mongering is going on. They accusing other people of being hateful when in <laughs> fact this is the source of the hate. Yeah. You know uh, that that people are actually being scared in the in the context of of the, the COVID thing, they were scared. In the, but they're also, they were also educated at a certain point to hate people who didn't agree with the narrative and to oppose people who refused to take this lethal vaccine, knowing that it was lethal and so on. And and those emotions For some, are used, for some. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, lethal for yeah, some. They're, they're used as kind of carrier, uh, uh, carriers that for, for uh, messaging, which, you know, primes people in a certain direction, which uh, convinces them not alone of a set of facts, but of a reality or what appears to be a reality, but is actually a fabricated pseudo reality, like a stage set that has been erected around them. So they can see nothing else except this. And therefore they assume this is what is real. This is what is happening. And and so people are in this kind of almost hypnotic state, this day where they're looking and they, you know, you know, I, I used to wonder, I, I, I found out something that I didn't know. I spent like 30 years as a journalist 
And I kind of, insofar as I thought about this question, I would have said something. How do people get information? How do they, I, I mean, how do they inform themselves? How do they absorb that information? And I kind of would have said, well, you know, they read the paper or they listen to the radio or they watch TV. But that's not really adequate to understanding what happens. What actually happens, Richie, is that by repetition, something goes from simply a statement of fact to a, to a reality, to a hard factual entity, a truth for them. And, and it's only when you actually have that kind of media that is able to kind of operate like that truthfully, that people will know what's really going on, because you can replicate that process with lies. And when you do that, it's just as convincing. So people actually think that they're living, that the reality that they see and hear is real when it's not. It's like, you know, you're in a theater. I remember being at the, in the Abbey Theatre in Dublin one time. There was a play on by Hugh Leonard, who's dead now, but he was a great playwright of, you know, the, the 70s and 80s and 90s. And it was called The House. And they built an actual house on the stage, an actual house from the exterior of the actual house, and full real size, you know. And as you come into the theatre, there was workmen building, you know, finishing the house off, like nailing down the few, the last few slates and painting the, the eaves and the, uh, the, fascia, the fascia and all that kind of stuff. And so you're sitting there and you actually think, I'm, I'm now watching the house, I'm looking yeah. at the house. And as it say, it sucked you into itself. And it's the same kind of thing that's been done on a day-to-day -day basis. So what's happening in the newspaper is not just the, the chronicling of information, it's the drawing of pictures of reality. And that's one of the things I think that's at play in what you're talking about. And but with that is mixed up all these emotions where be, by people are afraid to think certain things. Certainly they're afraid to say certain things and being afraid to say them, the next stage is they're afraid to think them. Because these kind of phrases, like we talked earlier about the word fascist or racist or homophobe, or they're, I, they're what I call, well, I, the great Roger Scruton, an English philosopher who died a couple of years ago, talked about these as spell words. They're kind of magical words which are used. I think of them like cattle prods, you know, that you're, you get this kind of, you know, yeah, you, yeah, racist, you know, and everybody looks around and sees you getting the prod, you know, and you jump and they say, well, and a space clears around you. And they're all thinking, I'm not going to be next. Yes. I'm not going to get that. And that process, this is the cultural process that you're, I think, touching on there, Richie, with that question. You know, what's wrong with people? I certainly think you're right. I mean, I know I hate to I hate to, I don't know make fun, as it were, because uh, it's not funny, of my own people. Like, But I, I sometimes, when, in the last few couple of years, I've got out and I come off a plane, you know, and you look at the people who come off the plane, the Irish people, and you're looking at them. And honest to God, Richie, they, they look half dead. They, they, they look like they're no longer conscious, alert, sharp, funny the way they used to be. They're beaten down. They're afraid to open their mouths about what they feel in their hearts for fear they will say the wrong thing yeah. and someone will attack them, you know? And that's everywhere. I talk to friends of mine, like, and, you know, you say to somebody, say, what's the story down here about such and such? And they look around them over one shoulder and then over the other, you know? And so, oh, no, sure, you can't open your mouth, you know? Sure, look at look at what happened to Tommy Tiernan, the comedian there a couple of weeks ago. Oh, like God, that's it. Well done for bringing that. This is a great illustration of that. Do you want to talk about this for a minute? This is very good. Yeah, well, like... Now, I, I've written at length about it. Yeah, it's on diary. the website. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, and uh, I, and I'm not entirely clear about the meaning of the joke. The joke was kind of clumsily put together because not that it was racist. I don't think Tommy Tiernan has a racist bone in his body, frankly. I honestly don't. I mean, I'm not the hugest fan of him because he's a bit of a lovey, you know. In fact, he's the opposite in a way to what you would think that a racist would be. But he makes a lot of, you know, he goes right to the knuckle in the sense that he takes humour seriously. He takes it seriously that you must be brave in, in talking about certain things. And that, you know, in a sense, you know, if you're not unkind, it's okay. Because, you know, lots of people, like we've lived with Irish jokes, Paddy, Paddy the Irishman jokes all our lives. Yeah. I'm never offended by those Never jokes. in a million years. No. You know, so, so why should people come into our country and, and say, dictate to an Irish comedian? What? Now, the joke, okay, I'll tell roughly what the joke was. The joke was something like this. Oh, I was up in the zoo the other day, you know, yeah. and there was, uh, there was the, the penguins that were like nuns. And then I went over and I saw the wolves and they were like Irish, you know, and, 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 and they, were, they were sort of, uh, uh, you know, wild and strong and fierce and all that. That was the analogy. Now, and then he said, and then I went to the African savannah and there was nothing there, only taxi drivers. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, so like, like, now, there is a vague shadow at the back of that joke, which I won't go into, of a potentially racist joke, but I don't think that was his intention at no. all. I don't think that even dawned on him. No, right? when I laughed, I didn't laugh because... Yeah. in any way demeans uh, these drivers who, many of them who, no. who come from Africa. No. It's just no, funny. No. It's an observational gang. But then two things yeah. happen. Once Free Now, which is a taxi company, which sponsored his show, ironically, withdrew their sponsorship. Right. Because they didn't want, because they, he said, made comments that were, quote unquote, offensive to taxi drivers. To taxi drivers, specifically. <laughs> Right. Even the Irish taxi drivers, or excuse yeah, yeah, yeah. me, even the indigenous so, Irish taxi incidentally, drivers. Incidentally, Richie, on, yeah. on that point, very interesting thing happened there about 10 years ago. People have forgotten this, where there was a problem with, you know, attacks on people by traffic uh, taxi drivers of, from, a, of, from a certain nation, right? And it did, was really happening. And the, re, the solution of the regulator at the time was that you no longer had to take the first taxi in the line. And that's still, as far as I know, obtains. So that's that's what you call an Irish solution to an Irish problem. That rather than face the fact and start to say, well, okay, what are we going to do about this? Uh, you actually come up with some bullshit uh, um, way of you know pushing the problem under the carpet. But anyway, Tommy Tiernan, you see, I I, I like you know if you go on and look at his stuff, he's on. There's a lot of his stuff on YouTube, and some of it's very funny. And he talks about travellers, and he can do ta travel accident. Yes, he's very so good. On. Yeah. It's very funny. And there's one sequence where he does about, you know, a sequence about meeting two young traveler lads. And, and it's very, very funny. But it's done with the deepest affection. You can see that he actually likes these people enormously and is respectful to them, you know. And that's the thing, you know, like humor is supposed to be hard. And, and you know, it's a way of it's a release valve. It's, a, it's, a, it's not just like tickle me to make me laugh. It's, it's like there's something there in the that the culture needs this humour as a way of disposing of things that people are not willing to talk about. Because there's something about laughter when you hear somebody like Tiernan saying things that you're not permitted to say. There's a great relief for many people in that. Can I just say and this on that, just very quickly, because I'll forget it if I don't mention this. My better half ran a bar in Spain 
um, for a number of years in, in a port in western Spain, western Costa del Sol, and she was brilliant at it. And one night in came Paul Gascoigne with Paul McGrath. Paul was off and on the drink at the time, and he was in good form. And it was lovely to see him, you know, and I'd never met him, even though I'd been a, a journalist in Ireland. And we sat down and we had a chat, and he was with his son, Chris, and we got talking about his journey as a footballer, as a black Irishman and, and as a footballer. And I couldn't help but ask him about that famous time he was taken to Bernard Manning's club. Do you know this story? No, he I had don't. A, he had a birthday in his 20s. And Brian Robson, the great Brian Robson, and a couple of United players, Frank Stableton, took Frank to see, it took Paul to see um, um, Bernard Manning. But Paul didn't know much about Bernard Manning. But they, they tipped off Bernard Manning, who was a Man City fan, that Paul was going to be in the audience. So anyway, as the story goes, out comes Manning, does his routine. Everybody except Northwest Englishmen get it, get it in the neck, basically. Every race, colour, and creed. Um, crude gags are made about them. People can make up their own minds about whether he was racist or not. I think there was something else going on, something like what you just said there. But anyway, he came to United, or one or two United fans being in the in the audience. He said, Paul McGrath is here. He said, great player, great defender. Paul McGrath, stand up, Paul. And then he said, uh, well, he said, he said, you got fecked, but he didn't say fecked, didn't you? He said, black and Irish. He said, you got properly dumped on, didn't you? Or something like that, anyway. So everybody laughed. I was speaking to Paul McGrath about this, and I said, when you look back upon that, is this kind of casual, you know, the old casual racism? And Paul McGrath said to me, it was hilarious. It was absolutely yeah. hilarious, he said. Now, you see, this is the point. This is the point, uh, uh, Richie, because I one of the things I think that this main thing about that episode was that what happened afterwards, that this woman who a black woman who walked out and then made a big fuss about him, this racist joke that Tommy Tiernan told that Tommy Tiernan subsequently contacted. She was a fellow presenter on RTE and he rang her up to apologize. And they had a long discussion in the course of which the reports say that he said to her, that he accepted now that has not, that he since he was not a member of a racial minority himself he was not entitled to make jokes about racial minorities right well is he entitled to make jokes about nuns <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah, who's speaking up for the nuns? Yeah, yeah. So, so, but you see the narrowness of that because yeah, see where yeah. that leads. Like where it leads, Richie, as a, as a, a genius comedian like uh, Tommy Tiernan, in ten years' time, if he follows his own logic, will be putting on shows in a room full of Irish people, where he'll make jokes about Irish people and Irish travellers and Irish nuns. But there'll be a huge elephant of colour standing in the middle of the room, can't say pushing everybody into the corners and nobody will be able to mention this elephant. That's really important you saying that. And when I was listening to that story about Paul McGrath and speaking to him about it, it occurred to me that in my self-righteous, I know everything days, late teens, getting into radio, I might have taken offence on his behalf. Isn't that an yeah. amazing phenomenon to take offence on somebody else's behalf, even oh, though... absolutely uh, right. And a lot of hate crime is based on that very, is predicated yeah. on that very idea, that the person themselves doesn't have to be offended. That if somebody listening is offended on their behalf, without their permission or even without their agreement afterwards, or with their disagreement, it still can be, the person can still be prosecuted for actually saying whatever it was they said. You know, like, this is very dangerous stuff, because it is... It's as it, you know, it, it actually relates to the capacity to think about things. You know, like jokes are very deep things, very, you know, because they actually they address the, the rigidities of society, you know, and the things that are 
dysfunctional in a society that people are afraid to talk about, as I say. Yeah. And it, they're a necessary release. And then, but they also draw attention to 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 uh, the necessity for change or way maybe ways of changing. And you know, I don't think that you know we have taken jokes all our life. There are jokes about in inter inter county jokes in Ireland like, between you know the cav the mean cavern man, yeah. and, you know, and so on, <laughs> uh, and very funny jokes about that. You know, uh, uh, but I've never met a cavern man who actually objected to them. No, or and, and this is the thing, and 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 I suppose we're we're entering territory now, where it's conceivable that that such stereotypical comments might be ultimately outlawed or outlawed. We can stay with this for a bit because it's a big developing story here in the UK. Listen, I've been in touch with um by by proxy, maybe I should say, um, with a Jewish journalist today. Um, who seems like a great person. I won't mention his name, but he, he should be on the programme next week. Um, he, he's a reasonably well-known Jewish writer. He is aghast that the GB News presenter, Neil Oliver, who spoke on a programme recently about, you know, uh, New World Order or One World Government, and he's been hammered by the boards of deputies of British Jews and one or two others for, you know, kind of, kind of dishing out kind of anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, I don't think this guy, Neil Oliver, based on watching or his shows and seeing some of his clips, I don't think he has an anti-Semitic bone in his body. I think he genuinely believes, like some of us do, that global governance is somebody's desired aim. We see that with the World Health Organization, the UN, the lockstep during COVID. Anyway, long story short, um, this Jewish journalist who we'll, I'll be speaking with next week, I, I, I believe, he said, he came up with an amazing thing, adjacent anti-Semitism. Wait for this. The Guardian has gone after Neil Oliver, not because he's an anti-Semite or because he said anything anti-Semitic, but because one of his guests wrote at one time for a publication that itself had a writer who did write about anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic tropes. And that is... That is so tyrannical, I can't even begin to define that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, uh, off the top, I didn't know about this, Richie. But yeah, it's a big story here now. Off the top of now. my head, I do know, uh, I know uh, uh, Neil Oliver's work, and I know immediately when you mentioned the Guardian. The reason the Guardian is going after Neil Oliver is that he is one of the great ethical voices that have followed on from the COVID uh, crime and has been calling out the media in Britain for, for, for the past year or two. And uh, that's why they're going after him. And that it doesn't matter. You see, one of the things that that, that climate of, that I'm talking about, of, of what I call the climate of lockjaw, lockjaw, where the people are seized, their faces, their mouths are seized in an ability to inability to speak, and that climate is, you know, that they, they are uh, one of the functions of it is to actually uh, 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 allow people like the Guardian or other journalists to put out lines about people that are unchallengeable for the simple reason that there's almost nobody there to challenge them yeah. in an audible way in the general culture, in the main square of the society. So they can put them out and they won't be contradicted in, an, to the, in the hearing of most people. And that's what they're doing. And in the same way as they're, they're putting out lie after lie about the COVID thing and about the deaths of, of people from vaccines and so on. And and that that's it. it's an assassination attempt. And it has worked. That kind of thing has worked before. You know, Kevin Myers, an Irish journalist, yeah. uh, was taken out there about five years ago uh, by such a coup, by, by such a, a, an assassination attempt. Uh, you know, uh, it, 
you know, th- th- this is, th- th- you know, it has to be said, like the Guardian is an appalling newspaper now. You know, it's really is a rancid rag. Uh, and and uh, uh, so I, I, I would certainly wish Oliver the, the best. Like he's a fine broadcaster and, and, and a, a totally ethical person. Any look, what I would say to anybody who's in any doubt about this, go on YouTube, fi- search out Neil Oliver and spend, say, half an hour listening to what he says about anything. It's and you, a, will see who, you will see who he is. It's a recent enough tactic. You you don't live here or read the media here, but but it obviously happened to this programme. Um, I mean, to the, to the extent that four out of five people invited to come on with me refused to come on because of what has happened to people who have come on in the past. You know, MPs have come on with me and then they've been told the whip would be withdrawn if they ever came back on again. It's a re- I'm not making this about me, but it's important to say this. It's a fairly recent phenomenon. To, to try and destroy a programme, in this case it's Neil Oliver's programme, by scaring guests away from it. Don't yes. go on that programme. I remember speaking to another Jewish journalist, uh, this one based in, um, uh, used to be based in Tel Aviv, now based in New York. I said it's, it astonishes me that they got away with doing what they'd done to the Richie Allen show. That they were able to scare guests away from it because I interviewed an anti-Semite some years ago and some years before that I interviewed a Holocaust denier. Now it doesn't matter that I challenged him and jumped in and had a go at him and hammered him and said it's not right and I don't agree with you, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter. You said, you said something really, really smart there and it never occurred to me. Unchallengeable, you said. There's yeah. really nobody there. That, you can't challenge that. Oh, Richie Allen, he, he hosted anti-Semites. That sounds terrible. Well, see, that sounds terrible, see, what, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, there's that rule. What's that rule about? You know, yeah. that we all know we're only whatever six steps removed from the president of the United States. You know yeah. what I mean? Or something. <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, in the same way, like if you if they you want to apply this guardian's logic to any person, they will have some connection with somebody who can can be identified as an anti-Semite or an anti-anything. You know, an anti-Roscommon man person. You know, <laughs> uh, which is a terrible crime. You know, or an anti-Rossi. Have you heard about those? Like they're terrible people. Like you know, Ronty Rossies. Uh, but you know, but this is the kind of games these that journalists nowadays get up in the morning and put on their clothes and and spend the day playing. Sadly, you know. Sadly, yeah. Let me it's just do, let me just do this. John Waters dot dot com. Uh, read John there. We've got John for another five, maybe ten minutes today. We've covered an awful lot in this time. John Waters.substack.com, quarter of a century at the Irish Times, the paper of record, and much more besides television, radio. And I don't want to do this again because we've done it too many times, but every time I talk to you, my heart actually breaks because I remember the long-form interviews with people who didn't get offended at somebody saying something controversial, but they relished the opportunity to say, well, hang on a second, I see it a bit differently and I have a point to put to you. God be with those days, John. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You see, that 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 the, the principle underlying that was that everything could be teased out in conversation. You know, that you, I say something, you pick me up, you criticize, you 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 either, you know, you say, well, oh, is that right? Or are you, can you back that up? Or whatever it is, you know, and, and, and 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 then I might say to you, Richie. Well, actually, now as you mentioned, yeah, I get, that's a bit over the top. Of what I said there, let me rephrase that. But you see, what actually happens now is that the first version, the one that you've actually already sort of withdrawn, as it were, is the one that they would use. You're not given that opportunity to do that. And indeed, you, the, 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 we've reached a stage now where that conversation doesn't even happen because either the ideologues who, who are running the discussions are not are blocking such such conversations or the producers or the, the, the 
the, the proprietors of media organizations are too afraid to allow these to happen because they're going to be attacked. And and th this is the operation of cultural Marxism, if I may be a far writer for a minute, uh, 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 you know, which is a, a, a scheme really to, to corral the world into a certain way of thinking so that we'll not be able to resist what they want to do, which is to impose totalitarianism on us all. And that, unfortunately, is the end result of all this, that people who, you know, think they're virtuous by engaging these this game playing will themselves become the victims of this in the long run and their children will and their children's children unless we stop this nonsense now. And that that's, I think, but it's it's at this moment in time, it's very hard to imagine it ever being stopped, Richie, you know, because, you know, I, I, I couldn't in when I was growing up in the west of Ireland reading stuff and, you know, then when I went on into journalism and, you know, we were engaged in that kind of journalism in, in different publications I was involved in and being on TV, as you said, and radio and hammer and tongs interviews where everything was trashed out and you might, you know, lose an argument or you might say something wrong or stupid and be made a show of in the course of that discussion, which is fair enough, right? You come home a bit shamefaced and yeah, so on, yeah, yeah. but you'd recover and you go back next time determined to be more clear or yes, less loose in your words or whatever, you know, be more precise. And that's not a bad thing, you know, but now did I, I could not imagine, I could not have imagined 20 years ago, uh, Richie, what we would end up, that we could possibly end up where we've ended up. Because it's actually like, I think I may have said this to you before, let's say it again, I've said it quite a few times, but it is like that somehow time has gone into reverse. And that, that kind of, while they keep talking about progress, they have actually turned us backwards. And we're heading fast for the Middle Ages in the context, in the terms of, of what it is possible to say and think in, in so-called democratic society. That's a tremendous uh, 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 regression from where we were, say, in the 1990s, the early 1990s or the 1980s. And, and uh, it doesn't seem that anybody is even you know, alerted to it in a general sense. They know that it's, it's, there's something wrong, but nobody's allowed to talk about it. This kind of conversation could not happen on any mainstream channel in Britain or Ireland. No, it couldn't. No. Do you know what? We'll leave it there for today, right? I want to thank you for okay. coming back on. Johnwaters.substack.com. I'll um, chat you up um, in March to ask you to come back on again. Um, we, you know I blew up my studio and rebuilt it late last year. That's why we haven't spoken in so yes. long. But I, I'm not uh, plomosing you when I say that. You're, 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 you're amongst three or four that the reaction when you come on is massive. Get him back on again. But if you go to johnwaters.substack.com, read John. And John, uh, thankfully, speaks to other programmes too. And you'll find interviews uh, often on, on different subjects with great presenters on other channels and other platforms. So johnwaters.substack.com. It's a pleasure, uh, John. Thanks, mate, for coming. Thank you very much, Richie. Thank you. See you again. I'll speak again Bye. soon. The great John Waters live on The Richie Allen Show, Thursday's programme. Top man, johnwaters.substack.com. Could listen to him all day and all night. And I'll say this, and I, he's gone now, so he won't, he won't hear this. But every time he comes on, it, it gives me an extra six months. <laughs> it, it, it puts six months life extra onto The Richie Allen Show because it, it, won't, it probably won't mean an awful lot to you. But uh, having grown up when you could do long-form interviews and you could chat with people, listen to them, you know, ask them questions, uh, give them room, you know, before it became four or five minutes and you didn't have any time, it's, uh, it's missed. I miss it. 
a lot and I don't get enough of it really. I'm coming back to you to chat more with you, to read some of your comments and there's something I want to say about that, about Neil Oliver. I was going to make a video today but I just couldn't do it because I couldn't articulate what it is that I wanted to say but I am going to come back and speak about it briefly. I won't bore you, I won't go over ground I've covered before but um, I just want to say something about that, about this attempt to silence people by scaring people away from their program or their platform. Bert Bacharach, 94, a genius. This is Alfie Silla Black, written by Bert Bacharach and Hal David, of course. Yeah, it's wonderful. Might make you want to go and see the film again if you've not seen it for some time. Alfie Silla Black. Jean Ann worked with uh, Michael Caine, Jean Ann Crowley, who wrote for the Irish National Press, who produced and, well, presented, I should say, radio programmes for RTE. Why do I mention that? Because I said something to Jean Ann Crowley on the phone this morning, which I had not said out loud, but had been on my mind for about three years. And saying it out loud was cathartic. I'll explain very quickly, and I promise you, you won't be falling asleep when I tell you. I said to Jean Ann this morning, I said, the people that are going after Neil Oliver, and those people are not Jewish people, or anything like it, they're not. Um, the people who are trying to take him down and scare people away from his programme, they succeeded in destroying my vision of the Richie Allen show, and they failed at the same time, a contradiction in terms. They succeeded in destroying my vision for the show in terms of, I had, I'd always wanted the show to be a place where I could interview the the politicians that, that we talk about often on the show, academics that we often mention or sometimes mention on the show, and that they would come on because they would enjoy spending 35, 40 or 45 minutes with somebody who disagreed with them. And, you know, they wouldn't mind being challenged on whatever particular subject we were speaking about. So you might say that's naive, but that was my ambition. And when I worked on radio in Spain for Talk Radio Europe, I succeeded in doing that. I was able to interview frontline politicians and ask them about global governance and stuff like that and put questions to them. And it was my ambition the Richie Allen show would do that. That because of my approach, which is not which is challenging but not confrontational and screamy, you know, I'm not Piers Morgan, I'm a thousand times I would like to think better than that. I'm not the greatest thing since sliced bread, but I'm not that idiot or or idiots like him. That was my ambition. And there were people who set out to destroy that, and they succeeded. Because as I said to John, four out of five times I invite somebody to come on the programme now, they decline to come on the programme, despite me demonstrating to them the reach of the programme, which is very important. When you ask somebody, will they come on your programme, if they have a profile, they are interested in what sort of numbers you do. And I totally understand that. It was the same in commercial radio. You know, if you've not got an audience, people don't want to come on your programme. But I would invite people on, and I would say, look, the programme's got a profile, it does well, Go to the chartable charts. You know, it's always in the top 50 news podcasts in the country. It gets two to three million downloads a month on Podomatic alone. Blah, blah, blah. I'm not bragging, but that's what you have to do. 
And um, But four out of five times I invite somebody on, they decline to come on because of what happened. Um, because f- for the same reasons as why people will now, presumably, maybe they won't be, be scared away from speaking to Neil Oliver. Because certain groups of people, not Jewish people, um, using the national print media, associated me with the views of some of the guests who came on the programme over the years. And that is the tyranny. That's the thing. That's the heartbreaking thing for me, that they could get away with doing that. You know, that I interviewed a Holocaust denier called Nick Collarstrom. Nick is a lot more than a Holocaust denier. He's a pretty complex human being. He's a very mild, soft-spoken, former academic guy who I disagree with completely when it comes to Nazi Germany. But um, he's more than that. Not going to get into that. So so that was then, that was years ago. I've had Red Ice Radio on. I've had, obviously, Mark Collett on. I interview people who would be on the right. And I do that because I like a challenge. I like to speak to people with whom I don't see eye to eye with. But that was used as a weapon against the programme. Successfully. They succeeded. And it was kind of heartbreaking because... You, you just get on with it and I got on with it and I'm like okay they don't want to come on I was embarrassed I'm, I'm by embarrassed and I, I, I explained this to Jean Anne today it's embarrassing for me I'm very competitive and I hope you understand what I mean by that having grown up in commercial radio and, and having ha, having kind of won we won our ratings were the best we beat everybody else in Waterford and in Munster we beat the national radio stations in our own game. I was fiercely competitive. I would do anything to make my radio programme and my presenter the number one. Anything. And I couldn't wait for the bi-annual ratings to come out because it showed that these were the fruits of your labours. You were the best at what you did. And you had more listeners because you were you know, superior to the other products. And it was, not so much now, but it was a source of embarrassment to me that I would invite academics on, doctors who are speaking out about things, to come on my programme, which has a far bigger reach than anything else, but they would turn me down based on, I will be destroyed if I go on that programme. Let me read you something, which I hinted at the other evening, but I didn't read it out. Um, I'm protecting the name here, because um, I don't have permission to name the person Involved, But this is a genuine message sent to a broker. Uh, a friend of mine who has been on this programme acted as a broker to get a an Israeli academic on this programme. So it's an Israeli gentleman. He's a professor at an Israeli university, right? And my friend, my, my, my former guest, my broker, said I'd like to um, get this person on because he'd be perfect for the programme. And he wrote back, uh, about anti-Semitism, right? And he wrote back, let me read it for you, because it's important to kind of see the way things are going. And keep Neil Oliver in mind now. I have nothing, in, I, I don't know what I have in common with Neil Oliver. I'm not comparing myself with Neil Oliver. He does TV for GB News. I don't do, uh, I'm an independent content creator. I don't have a producer. It's just me, right? Hi, says this Israeli professor. Thank you very much for making this connection. I am somewhat familiar with Richie. I have no problem personally with his content, but I'm concerned by the optics of appearing on the show of someone who is routinely branded, even though 
unjustifiably, as anti-Semitic. I'm reluctant to come on to talk about this issue um, related to charges of, of anti-Semitism against Andrew Bridgen because it's, it's like a hot potato wrapped inside a hot potato. So I'm going to beg off. The last thing I need are headlines like this directed at Sir Desmond Swain and then this academic in Israel linked to an article whereby I'm called anti-Semitic and Desmond Swain is told that he will lose the whip if he ever appears on the Richie Allen show again. So you have this gentleman, this, this Israeli academic, seems like a really good guy, familiar with Richie, know the programme, kind of. No, he's not really anti-Semitic, but I can't go on. They succeeded, the people who set out to try to demean the programme or to somehow take, take away from the quality of the programme by scaring people coming onto it. And this is one of the things that nearly caused me to quit in mid-2021. It wasn't just covering the COVID bollocks morning, noon and night for all of that time. It was this nonsense. Having built a radio show, with help, by the way, No Man is an Island, from many people, Jean anne uh, Paul, Hayden, the people who have generously supported it over the years out of their own pocket, built up a, a phenomenon, because it is a phenomenon, you know, a studio built out of a room in a council uh, house, right? One guy doing it on his own and having millions of people download that. But they destroyed my vision for it and they succeeded in doing it. And they're doing it now and they're going to keep doing it to anyone who asks questions about or even even speaks to somebody who is asking questions about whether it's vaccine safety, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's anything. So I said they succeeded and they failed. They failed because they didn't drive me away from it. But it is continuously a source of irritation to me that you can build a platform with an enormous reach and people will turn you down, not because of anything you've ever done or said, but because you interviewed somebody in the past that's controversial. But yet they will appear on Mickey Mouse platforms with average, if not dubious, presenters with less, far less of a reach than mine. And you might say, there's an ego in there now. Not really. No, no, it's not. I left that behind me a long time ago when I left commercial radio. So that's what they did. It's all, most of it is on Wikipedia, although a lot of that is complete nonsense about how they succeeded in doing that. Organisations like Hope Not Hate, idiots putting out statements saying, the Richie Allen show is a, is a haven for anti-Semites. There was a Labour MP called Alex Sobel, a goon, I think he's Jewish, this guy, a complete cretin, who said that the Richie Allen show ferments anti-Semitic thought. What the fuck does that even mean? Do you know what that means? Because I don't know what it means. My accountant is Jewish, you've heard me say that before. He's um, very well known in North Manchester, very well respected. He said to me, did Stephen, I'll come on the show with you as a Jewish man, to, to announce, you know, who I think you are. And I said, no, no, because that lets them know that, you know, they've, they've won, they've beaten you then. If I'm going out to get Jewish people to come on the programme to say, well, this guy's a good guy, really. He, he doesn't have any, hold, hold any hardness in his heart, heart even towards uh, Jews or anybody else. But, um, yeah, it brought it all back this week. You know, I don't know Neil Oliver, we follow each other on Twitter. He follows thousands of people on Twitter. 
I I um, follow a couple of thousand people on Twitter, but um, it kind of brings it back, and it's so hard to believe they can get away with it. It really is. It's so hard to believe that they can so easily scare somebody who's got something so important to say, so easily scare them away from speaking on a channel which does have a lot of listeners. I can't. Why? I've seen this stuff in the papers. Not going to have it. I'll be deplatformed. Remember Martin Kulldorf, the Harvard academic, who came on to talk about the lunacy of lockdowns and how lockdowns would do far more damage to the nation's health than any mild respiratory infection could do. They tried to destroy Kulldorf here in the UK, even though he's an American, and they also tried to destroy him in New York and in Boston because he came on this programme. I mean, it's insane. Why? Because the presenter is a knuckle-dragging thug? No, but he, he did interview this guy years ago. I remember Oprah Winfrey interviewing David Duke. I interviewed David Duke and argued with him and interrupted him and said, I don't agree with you. I think you're wrong. But that's where we are now. I talked about this, I think, last week, but very briefly. This new term, platforming. He platformed. You saw it in Ireland last week. Justin Barrett came on. I don't know what's in Justin Barrett's heart because I'm not a friend of Justin's. I don't live in in Leitrim or wherever it is Justin and his wife live at the moment. I have never had a drink with Justin. You know, I've never gone to a football match or a hurling match with Justin Barrett from Ireland's National Party. But he's the leader of the National Party. He's an articulate, genial type of guy. And I wanted to bring him on to talk to him about why he's so concerned about what's happening in Ireland. And I challenged him repeatedly, you know, some of the points I brought up with John tonight. But this thing, he platforms Nazis. This is all the rage now. We must close down platforms because, or close down content creators because they platform. When did interviewing somebody who sees things differently than you see them, when did that become platforming them or amplifying their views? But you're not amplifying anything. You're not platforming anything. You're asking questions. Why? Why do you think that? Are you just anti-migrants, full stop? Are you just anti... Are you just a NIMBY? Not in my backyard. Are you just a fake Christian, you know, that, you know, Jesus wouldn't have put up with this? No, no, you're platforming and it's wrong. And you're dangerous and you must be shut down. So when I see what, 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 what they're doing to Neil Oliver, and they will do it to others, when they ask questions, I, I know I've kind of made it a little bit about me in the last few minutes, and it isn't. I don't want you to think that. It's the parallel. It's about the issue. It is obvious and apparent to me, as is my nose on the end of my face, that there is an agenda to... to basically remove the rights of nations to govern themselves, to make national sovereignty a thing of the past. Did we ever have it? I doubt it. You know, where the people elect a government and that government, acting independently of other governments, even neighbouring governments, works for the good of the national people. If you can't see that there has been an agenda and is an agenda to basically do away with the old concept of sovereignty and cede power, or cede, I should say, control 
over national governments to, well, to, for, for example, we see in Europe, the European Union, for example, where fiscal policy, monetary policy, trade policy, defence policy, immigration policy is controlled by a few unelected bureaucrats in Brussels. And that's a generalisation, maybe, but it's a fact. That's what global governance is. And Neil Oliver was talking about that. And he's been accused of basically platforming anti-Semitic ideas. But where's the anti-Semitism in it? Did he say there's a group of Jewish people sitting around plotting to run the world? No, he didn't because he doesn't believe that, I assume. I don't believe that. No, he said there is a plan. And I, I can see the plan, he said. We can see it and we, we can see how governments and how some sections of the media are trying to make it almost impossible to talk about that. And the Guardian does its hit piece and the Board of Deputies of British Jews, which doesn't represent Jews in Britain. It's a wonderful, grandiose name, that. The Boards of Deputies. They don't re represent Jews. They don't represent the Jewish people I know. They're coming for anybody, I think, who wants to talk about these agendas. The agenda to, to, to bring in a global system of governance where every country in the world will have the same rules and regulations and laws, and every country in the world will have the same responsibilities, will, will have the same liabilities, will have to do the same things with respect to dealing with climate change and all of that jazz and all of that nonsense. If you can't see that, that it's happening right now, well, I think you're either obtuse or you're galactically stupid. But increasingly, as one or two more mainstream people start to speak about this, they will be demonised in that way. You are facilitating or platforming anti-Semitic tropes or racist tropes and that will scare the granny out of guests who might have been prepared to come on those programmes to talk about it. That's how they do their censorship. They largely succeeded with this programme because 80% of the people I invite to come on with me refuse to come on, not because of me, not because this is, you know, some internet thing, some Facebook thing. No, no, this is a massive radio show with a huge reach in 130 countries. Not coming on because I'll be destroyed for it. And that's, um, I've been annoyed the last couple of days thinking about that, thinking of what they did to this show in the last five, six years, and it's ongoing, but doing it now to guys working at GB News and elsewhere. Look, thanks to John Waters for coming on. I've had my little rant now. I, I, I've had enough. I'm going to crack on and uh, get the programme online. I'll be back on air on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock UK time with Sunday Morning Melodies, which is a completely different beast altogether. If you can join me for that, please do. Thanks for listening during the week. Look after yourselves and one another. Speak on Sunday. And, of course, this programme will be back on Monday at 5 o'clock UK time. Sloan Tommel. Bye.